Welcome to Bible Studies on, uh, on a one-off topic today. I sent an email earlier to tell you what it is, and that email, I'm afraid, uh, was based on, on misapprehension on my part. So we're not doing Psalm 100, uh, Psalm 89 at all, we're doing oh. something else, uh, oh. as I will tell you uh, in just a moment. But let's open with prayer first. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the wisdom, the power of your word, and, and the opportunity for us to Meditate on it now. Please guide us by your Holy Spirit in our study, in our thinking, in our speaking. Teach us to know what we need to know and to understand, so that our faith in you may grow. Our love for you and progress increase. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, the misapprehension that I'm guilty of is based on a, uh, um, on a so typo in, in the bulletin this week. So there will be a typo in this bulletin. Um, there are two optional two options of a psalm uh, for this coming Sunday, and I put the heading for one and the content of the other in the bullet. So the psalm that we will be singing in in church on Sunday, is Psalm 146. <laughs> so is that the one? That's the one we're looking at today, oh. Psalm 146. It's a shame because Psalm 89 is wonderful. It might help us because uh, Psalm 89 is very long. And Psalm 146 is quite short, so we will uh, hopefully be more, more efficient, more efficient today uh, that way. Psalm 146. And. What I suggest that we do is we just read through it first and then uh, have our discussion afterwards. Sarah, would you mind reading for us? Is that okay? Yeah. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Uh, this psalm is um, the first of the uh, set of five psalms that end the book of Psalms. Um, the book of Psalms is divided as, it, as we have it now. Uh, divided into five books. Uh, they, we don't know when their final collection of songs was put together, who the editors were, uh, how the, um, you know, or anything of the process, but we do know that they are labeled five books, um, or five scrolls. The, they, those five probably, in a theological way, they match the five books of Moses, the law, the Torah. Uh, possibly also in a practical sense, they are a scroll each. 
because uh, because there's a there's a limit uh, to how much text you can get into a single scroll while that scroll remains manageable, and so um, if that's uh, that's another possible reason uh, why we have uh, those different uh, why why they are divided. What I'd like to do before we do anything else is to look at the last psalm in each book of the books of Psalms. So if you keep a finger in Psalm 146 and then just go backwards to Psalm 41. Psalm 41. That one. That one. 41. Oh, 41. Sorry. Psalm 41. All I want to do is to read the very last verse of Psalm uh, 41. Rosemary, could you do us the honour of reading Psalm 41, the last verse? Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting or everlasting, amen and amen. Thank you. We then go to Psalm 72. And read the... uh, not the last, but the penultimate verse. Oh, no, sorry. So verse 18, verses 18 and 19. Uh, Prue, might you read that for us, mm-hmm. please? Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Thank you. Uh, Then we go to the end of book three, which is Psalm 89. And the last verse... That's the one that we were going to look at today. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Book 4 ends in Psalm 106. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say Amen. Praise the Lord. Right, so those are the ends of the first four books of the uh, Psalms. And so how, do, how does each, end, each book end? A lot of Amens. <laughs> amen, and before the Amen itself. Everlasting, yes. everlasting. Blessed. So there's a, a call to bless praise the Lord, the Lord. Or, or praise the Lord. The, the technical term for such a verse is a doxology, 
we sing a doxology every time we sing anything to the Psalms. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, and will be forever. Amen. That's the doxology from the Greek word for word of word of, of praise. So each book of Psalms ends with that's a doxology, regardless of what the psalm is about, which sometimes um, is uh, a little bit jarring because, for example, that's what, uh, that were, were one we just looked at, um, <coughs> Psalm 106, uh, begins by praising the Lord, but towards the end of the psalm, it's focusing on all the things that have gone wrong for Israel because of their unfaithfulness. And the verse just before is, save us, O Lord, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise, i.e. we are scattered among the nations, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. So that is clearly been added in a way it's not integral to the psalm itself. Now, when we get to the end of book five, we don't get that quite, or we do, but not in that way. So first of all, if you go to the very last psalm, Psalm 150, it doesn't have end like that. Rather, the whole psalm is just a repeated and extended call to praise God. The entire psalm, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in the mighty heavens, praise him for his mighty deeds, praise him according to his excellent greatness, praise him with trumpets, sound with lutes and harp, tambourine and dance, praise him with strings and pipe, praise him with sounding cymbals, praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. It's almost like a, for all the things that we've been singing about in the last 149 verse of psalms, Praise him for that. But he also, if you look at the last five psalms, so 146 is the fifth psalm from the end. First sentence. Praise the Lord. 147. Praise the Lord. 148. Praise the Lord. And 149. Praise the Lord. So the last five books of the psalms are all ones that are praise the Lord. So we have like this, we've got a whole psalm that does what one verse does and all the others. This doxology, but in fact, the whole of the last fifth, um, the five uh, uh, psalms are all psalms of praise. It's like, and if you're singing the psalms in order, it gets, it has this sort of crescendo, grows of praising God, which then culminates in the final psalm. So this comes, regardless of when the psalm was written and who by, and we don't know the answer to that question because it doesn't tell us. It nevertheless is put in that section, not just because. Somebody said, okay, this is the section in the Psalms that says praise, like in our hymnals, or hymns of praise, hymns of penitence. No, um, they are all mixed together, but this is, uh, is a, a hymn of, you know, the, this sort of extended praise of God. And the question then is, before we look at the Psalm any further, uh, any, any, in any more detail, is what does it mean to praise the Lord? By the way, praise the Lord. What's praise the Lord in Hebrew? You all know it. Whether he knows or not. Oh, hallelujah. hallelujah. Yes. Oh, very good. Hallelujah. <laughs> praise. Yah. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's, uh, and the Yah means the Lord. Yahweh. Praise the Lord. What does it mean to praise the Lord? And it's, it's not necessarily a straightforward simple answer, but if, 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 if you think of praising God, what does that mean to give honor to him? Okay, good. Anything else? What does it mean to praise the Lord? So recognizing and acknowledging who God he is and what he's done. You put thanks in there, or is that 
it is a, it is an aspect of Thanksgiving, I suppose. Is yes, always in, in a sense there is a you could say thank thank the Lord and praise His name. Mm-hmm. What praise is, I think, is important to say is that it is a focus on the thing that you're praising. When you're praising God, or you're praising anything at all, you are extolling, you're talking about it, not about yourself. Because it has a capital P anyway. That's just because of the start of the sentence. But if you look at verse 2, it's got a small p, I will praise God. It's, a, it's only a capital because of, of, of sentence punctuation. But the point is that when you're praising anything, you're talking about it and not yourself. And I'm saying this because this is a matter on which there is often confusion. We think we're praising God when we tell God what we think of. Which is not quite the same thing. Still I'm talking about now me. Yes. And if I tell you, you know, how much I think of you, and then I start talking about talking about my thoughts, you don't actually learn anything about what I actually think of you. And I feel all, all overwhelmed and I'm, I'm all, I'm all swept away, but by what? What exactly is it? You know, is it my hairdo, my clothing, or the way that I cook, or my accent? You know, you, you, to praise someone or something is to talk about it and not about yourself. And essentially, praise is advertising language, where you're talking about something in order to, I think you were extolled, use the word extol, in order to promote or extol something. And therefore, biblical praise is always content-rich, where the content of, or the, if you like, the reason for the praise is ultimately at the center of it. I often, uh, and those of you who've been to many, many Bible studies, but I before, um, will know that I, I often like to use Psalm 117 as an example, because it's the shortest psalm in the Bible. You don't need to turn to it. I will just tell you that it, it's basically two verses long. And if you're praising God for two verses, you haven't got many words to spare, so you have to be pretty much on, on, on the message. Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. That's the first verse. For great is his steadfast love towards us, and his faith, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. That's basically one long sentence in this particular translation is split into three sentences, but it's really just one long sentence of which the longer half is why we're praising God. The other example that we can give is this, does it in a very different way, Psalm 136, um, which gives us a step-by-step list of all the things that God has done. Give thanks to the Lord for his good, for his steadfast love and good forever. And so on, starting with creation all the way to the redemption. So praise is content-rich, and the, the content is the cause of praise in God himself. That's what we mean by praising the Lord, and it, therefore you can praise God without feeding it. It's enough to know things. To praise God is not to be in a particular ecstatic state or enthusiastic, have enthusiastic feelings. It's simply to have the right knowledge and to speak appropriately about it. You can be the, uh, you know, you, you might have the feelings of somebody who's discovered this great product or somebody whose job it is to sell it and has told the same spiel a hundred times, but it's nevertheless true. That's the point. So let's have a look 
than at how God is praised in this particular psalm. It begins with the hallelujah, praise the Lord. Uh, that, by the way, is a plural. So it's, it's a call to all people. Uh, so when it's 146, that's 146. First one, praise the Lord. It's a communal or plural. So it's addressed to all, all the congregation. We can, by the way, the book of Psalms is very much, uh, is its primary location, if you like, for its use is in a congregation rather than in private devotion. But the, it is, but the, but the, it begins with the older translations, you know, King James would say, praise ye the Lord. And then it goes on to speak unusually, well spotted, it speaks unusually, uh, speaks in the singular. And we can think about who the I is or the myself. But the first, well, the first one is, is addressed to everyone. And praise the Lord. But the same, second one is an individual one. And the first one is praise ye the Lord. And the second one is praise thou the Lord, O my soul. So it's an inter- it's addressed to oneself. But it's addressed to oneself in the hearing of all. Hence the, the communal setting. If you think of it like a, what would this look like in, in reality, in, in, kind of in, in everyday life, it could be like a solo performance in the midst of the congregation. Or so, solo psalm, solo song in the midst of the congregation, in the hearing of all. Praise the Lord, O my soul. What do you understand by that, my soul? What do you understand that to me? Yeah, it's, it's okay. okay. The word soul, what do we, what do we usually understand by the word soul? Our inner being. Sorry? Our inner being, you know. A bit that doesn't decay. Yeah, the, the bit that's there, that stays after you die, removes and goes up with the Holy Spirit. Okay, any, any other thoughts? A bit that's not the body, but that is you. You're saying lots of things that is not. Because it's very hard to define. No one's ever seen a soul. No, okay. Now, the, 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 uh, the reason I want to ask it, or, or I asked that was because the answers always are very vague. Um, the first thing to note is that the, in, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, the word soul, its kind of primary meaning is life, that which has breath. In fact, it has the, the word has the same origin as the word for them. So you read that, it goes in and out. So it's body. It's not, no, body and body, you can have a body without breath. If you, if you don't believe me, go and visit a morgue and, and you can see, right. you will see several. Body without a breath, but then one, a body is animated, anima being a Latin for breath, therefore our soul is animated, then it has come, and then it, it becomes a living thing. Remember in, in Genesis 2, God formed Adam out of the ground, Mm-hmm. And he breathed into him the breath of life and living. And, and so the, I'm not saying that it only refers to breathing, because it doesn't, but that the primary meaning is that it is a living being, because the soul is the, the, and, then, and now it's my turn to be vague, the thing that makes us alive, not purely in the biological sense. But the um, soul is the last thing that dies, isn't it? What do you mean? Well, 
it's the being of the person. I was always told, I wasn't told wrongly, and that's the case, but the soul is the important part of everyone. You see, that, that last bit I wouldn't agree with, because we were created body and soul. It's not that we have a... It's, and we, we, we discussed this um, in the evening Bible study just before Christmas when we talked about a whole different topic, but we are not souls that happen to live in bodies. You're not your soul. You're your body and soul. That's what it is. Yes, okay, but when you die, I take the point. But, the, but then, then when we think, you know, the soul, uh, you know, the, the soul somehow departs the body and goes somewhere else, we are now treating it like it's some kind of a substance or a thing like you know you might remove somebody's heart and, and, and transplant it to somebody and then the soul gets transplanted it's not a body part but rather the like it there it's it we're talking vague terms because the bible is is not very specific about it and because we we understand the world purely material terms because we 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 understand the world through our senses but the bible always speaks of the body of the being this thing called the soul. We also, the Bible speaks of the spirit of the person. And it doesn't mean that it's, it's, you know, you've got your, your senses and your organs and your all these things and the soul. Like, uh, the French philosopher Descartes, uh, he, he, um, speculated that the soul resides in the pineal gland. Well, he doesn't. Um, but, to speak of the soul is to refer, as, as several of you have said, to the essence of a person. And the, 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 if you like, the spiritual receptor, the receptor, receptor of a person. Could you yes. say the people who don't believe don't have a soul? No, everybody, everybody who lives has a soul. In fact, you could say that animals have souls too. They have souls of animals. They're not human souls. And which is why they're not, for example, they're not spiritual. Uh, beings, um, but in strictly speaking, they do have life, but life as animals as well as life as humans, and they receive their life from uh, from general creation as opposed to God breathing them into the breath of life, which is unique. So to say, praise the Lord of my soul is poetically speaking, you're simply addressing yourself, <coughs> you know me, but of course it's addressing not the foot or the or the nose, but he's addressing the soul. So my in, in a sense you could say that this is he's saying, Praise the Lord, my being, the one the thing that I actually am, the one the one that I actually am goes to the, in other words, it's not just an activity of the mouth, but it's an activity of the whole person. The whole person praises the Lord. And and there's an interesting question then we could talk about but we at least we're thinking about how do we praise the Lord how do we praise God um, in addition to praising him with our mouths, with our words how does the rest of me praise God um, you know if, if I think of praise praise as simply a verbal activity extolling God with my words but it says praise the Lord of my soul my, you know, the, the me that lives, all of me. Some people raise arms, or is that too simplistic? Well, of course, the, yes. Yeah, so what that refers to is that there is, you know, we don't just sit in silence, silence in a dark room, and utter words, but our whole body gets involved in the act of praise. 
so some people raise arms, or you can, you know, you stand, we often in church, you know, there's a doxology in him. We stand up, even if we've been sitting up to that point. Um, sometimes praise is expressed with, with prostration or bowing before God, like in the book of Revelation. But I was also thinking that beyond the actual act, activity of uttering God's praise. Right, so if we say we, we praise God by acting as if he is God, you know, I'm just reading a book which is set in the court of Henry VIII, and every now and then, just in passing, you say that the way that people walk in the presence of king is different from the way they walk back at home. Even though they, they're just walking, because in the presence of the king, they do differently. They make sure not to turn their backs off the for starters. They have to go out backwards, don't they? Whatever, but that's, that's the, you know, how, however you do it, you know, everything is different. The way you eat your soup at home is different from the way you eat your soup at the royal dinner, because you're in the presence of the of royalty. And so, if we say, in other words, you're acknowledging with all your actions that you are in the presence of the Majesty, and so we are constantly in the presence of God, and therefore all that we do ought to praise the Lord. In other words, by acknowledging that we are His and He is our God. What about that Lord itself? We will speed up in just a minute. I'm just getting any worried. The Lord. Tell me about the word Lord in that first verse. It's the capitalized one. Which is what? Yeah. Yes. So the capitalized Lord, all all letters capitalized, not just the first letter. It's the name of God, which is often reconstructed from uh, as to have been pronounced Yahweh or something along those lines. Um, <clears throat> Which is why every time you have a name in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it just has Yo or Joe or Jar in Elijah, Joanna, John, all these names are that Joe or Jarbit is, refers to, or is, is, is a, it's a shorter version of, abbreviated version of Yahweh. Elijah, Eliyah, God, the Yahweh is my God. That's what that name means. Appropriate name for it. So this is addressing God by name, not in some generic sense. And by the way, this is something I think is very helpful both to us and to others, that we try to avoid roundabout expressions about God when we talk about him. Um, I've noticed that very often when you have, I, I like to listen to uh, In Our Time on Radio 4, and whenever the topic has something to do with Christianity, they very often refer to Jesus as Christ rather than Jesus, without ever saying the word Jesus. Um, which is an interesting interesting thing in many ways, but it, it, it's particularly interesting to me that, uh, that uh, Melvin Brown <coughs> hardly ever uses the word Jesus. When he's talking about Jesus. Which has the effect, at least in my ears, of depersonalizing, making, making, making just that little bit less personally present. And sometimes that happens, ironically, <laughs> In my experience, when people, it can happen when, when we stop speaking. I mean, even though in Hebrew, the Lord is personal and God is impersonal, it seems to me that sometimes in English it's the other way around. So, you know, um, the, um, you know, many, many, many ways you can, uh, uh, summarize the Bible, um, I, I was just thinking as I was preparing, thought into my head, there was a, um, 
a novel written probably 15 years ago now um, became very famous called We Need to Talk About Kevin. I thought the Bible could be summarized simply as we need to talk about Jesus. And 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 in our in our in the way that we speak of God and with the way we speak of Jesus is to refer to him very personally, so that our attention is drawn to him as a person as opposed to this sort of more distant or abstract idea or thought. So praise the Lord, O my soul. And now he then <clears throat> goes into into the actual act of praising by declaring, verse 2, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. This is uh, a typical feature of Hebrew poetry called parallelism. The very way often, the way Hebrew works, uh, Hebrew poetry works, is that you say the same thing twice. But the second time you say it differently. And the second, and the second repetition of it adds something to the first that really, you know, like hammers in the point. It's like, you know, knocking a, knocking a nail in with two, uh, two, two blows of the hammer. First one gets it going, the second one drives it home. And so when we see these repetitions, they're deliberate. And they're not just saying the same thing twice, but the second time adds something that really uh, uh, that that really draws our focus and draws the focus to what is really being said. If you just look at I will the first line, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. How long is that? For all the all the time, because you're supposed to have you're supposed to have internal life. Yeah, but you're I've got bad news. You're going to die. Oh yes, but and then you're dead. Die, I know. And in fact, there are many places in Psalms that things like, "Will they just praise you, God? You know, will there be, will will people, you know, will will Sheol praise you?" Implied answer is no. So you could read this first line, but I will praise the Lord as long as I live, and then I'll die and I'll stop. Mm. But then comes the second line: I will sing praises to my God, not God, but my God, while I have my being. As long as I live. Mm. Have you got the same twice? Um, no, that's just the praise of the Lord my son. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. What about the previous line? I will praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord all my life. All my life, okay. Mm. Um, so your translation, generally speaking, tries to come up with a, make it, make it sound as naturally English as possible. But sometimes, and in this case, I think it's slightly obscure also, because as long as I live, as long as I have my being, now my being, as we already discussed earlier, is my body, my soul, soul and body, and body together. And so the, the and my being comes from God Himself, God Himself has given my being. So how, when, when is that? How long will I praise God while I have my being? Until I lose my breath, i.e. the the earthly death. Well, it could be that. But of course, in God's eyes, in God's presence, we we know, as Rosemary, you were were, uh, implying earlier, is that there is, you know, God God does not forget us when we die. In fact, Mm -hmm. the dead are not dead in him. 
and Jesus uses it as, as a chief argument against the Sadducees. The Sadducees, you know, pose that, you know, want to disprove, um, the, uh, uh, the, um, uh, disprove the, uh, existence of a life after death by telling the story of this woman who's married to one man, didn't have children, and, you know, the seven brothers all had him, uh, had her as, as their wife, and then last she died, whose wife will she be? And the point being, there is no life after death. And what is the biblical argument that Jesus uses? He says, God says, I'm the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob. He's the God of the living and not of the dead. So Abraham, if God is the God of Abraham, he's the God of Abraham who still lives, though he died. So as long as I have my being, that now places the matter not in simply into the matter of biological necessity and how long my body happens to be alive, but it actually now as long as I might be. My soul does not. For, for a time, my breath departs from my body, but in fact, the soul that God has created is more than mere breath. And therefore, there is no end to my praising of God. Will the dust praise you? If it were but dust, no. But as it happens, in our case, it does. Jesus uh, came specifically to seal the resurrection and the life and, and of life uh, and life everlasting, not only for the future but also for the past. So the dead in Christ include those who were dead in Christ before Christ was in the world. And so this is a, the beginning. When we praise God, we are simply involved in an activity that will go on to all eternity. A further reading, see the book of Revelation, which speaks of the eternal worship of the church <coughs> uh, before God. So that is, that's the kind of stall set out. Now comes instruction, and praise is instruction because it draws our attention to things so that we might recognize them and rightly praise them. We must know what it is that we praise. And the first instruction, verses 3 and 4, is a negative instruction. Do not. Put not your trust in princes. Give me another word for trust. Another biblical synonym for trust. Faith. So it's a matter of now, who do we trust? First commandment, you shall have no other gods. Our catechism explains it. We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And God says, I, you know, hear Israel, Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength. There are no other gods, and therefore to put your trust in anything else is to put your trust in a lesser being, lesser thing. Put not your trust in princes, referring to, in other words, what, what's, what's it short for? Your earthly authority. Put not trust you in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Psalm uh, 121 begins with a very important question. So I lift up my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? Yeah. So where does my help come from? Where, Where do I look to for my help and my salvation? And the answer to that question is, that's your the thing that you trust. That's the thing that you have faith in. That is to say, that is your God. And this is a very important question because uh, the world is full of rival gods and our heart is always seeking for a God. 
put not your trust in princes, in earthly authorities, those who are in power and control, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. To call somebody son of man, now I don't know what your translation says, Barbara, but my guess would be that if he does verse 3, it either says son of man or has the word mortal. Verse 3, yes. Excuse me. Human beings. Human beings, okay. But the son of man, and the emphasis with that phrase is on mortality. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Now, I would like to stop, to kind of pause there just briefly. What does it mean to put your trust in princes, in the Son of Man? In, pr- in practice, I don't mean in kind of theory. I think we understand the phrase, but what does that look like in everyday life for the Christian? God. Sorry? Another God. No, he's, he's referring to earthly rulers. Right. Earthly rulers. So in our case, it would be kind of the government, parliament, legislation, magistrates, police. What does it mean? In what sense? Because we are, after all, according to the Bible, we're supposed to be obedient to earthly authorities. How is it different if we put our trust in? I suppose if, you, if something's happening and you know it's wrong, then that's when you stop having trust in them. But he's saying, do, it doesn't say put all your trust in princes when they go off the rails. <laughs> it says put all your trust in princes at all. Mm-hmm. Well, that means that God knows that they're going to go wrong. I don't think it does. I think it's talked about something more fundamental. I think it's not that you don't respect their authority and obey them, but that your fundamental trust, your faith for your own life and all the things that are beyond human governance is, is obvious in God. And he's given us the authorities for good order, mm-hmm. but they're not the source of our faith. So what would it look like if they were the source of our faith? We would expect them to solve problems. I mean, take the COVID situation. When people put their trust in governments to provide solutions and lockdowns and vaccines and financial support and everything. Um, but actually, fundamentally, your trust is in God for your life and death. Right. So that's a, I think that's a very, a very good and apt example. So what, what, what is it that... Where do we look to for uh, for help in trouble, as it were? Um, uh, uh, <clears throat> in our church, in but, our Bible. Well, th- that's the correct answer. What's the ac- what's the true? What's the accurate answer? <laughs> it, I mean, it's a rhetorical question, and you need to take the example of Sarah just gave. You know, when he came to COVID, where did we look to? What did we expect to be the solution to our problems? Um, for society at large, it was government policy and everybody complying with it. It was vaccinations, it was vaccine passports and masks and other things that princes, that these earthly rulers gave to us. And of course, people were looking for these solutions because they were afraid of dying or becoming very ill. Understandably. But these things, at best, postpone death, or they reduce the number of deaths now. 
the, the, the cheerful news is that with or without masks, the probability of death remains exactly 100% for humans. And the mortality rate for humans is 100%. It's just a question of timing and method. And what the nation needed was to know that this is nothing new. And yes, we will all die. And of course, we want to prevent premature deaths and unpleasant deaths and things that cause anxiety and distress and pain. But it's pretty meager, <laughs> meager solution to say, okay, we're going to make sure that you don't die today. You know, if you go to the doctor and, and, you know, or go, let's say you go under a knife, you think a general anesthetic is dangerous. So, well, you know, we think we, I think we will, you live till at least tomorrow. Would you be confident? And, uh, that's all we can offer. That's all that the earth, earthly things can offer. Another example is found in first Corinthians where Paul reprimands the church because members of the church are quarreling with each other and are taking each other to court over their quarrels. He says, one one of you has a grievance against another. Does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? So again, seeking personal gain for over one another by turning to earthly authority when we are actually members of the body of Christ and we should be living in harmony with one another and be able to solve these things in a Christian way. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. There might be temporary relief. And God gave us earthly authority so that life is less unbearable than it otherwise would be, or more bearable or more ordered. But it doesn't actually give us salvation. No ultimate When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans better. And in a democratic society, that day might come sooner when there's an election. I might ask a more broad question. Mm, um, so we're sitting here reading this psalm as if these are words that we ourselves say that apply to our life situation and they fit very nicely mm-hmm. into that. But there are other psalms where that isn't the case, um, where we say words like, I'm in the pit and my life is something before me and whatever you know I'm, you know you say these things that are with the article i mm. and yet i personally am not experiencing or feeling those things or those things just other things just don't apply to me so how is it that we can sit and talk about this psalm as if this is our words uttered to god from our mouth but mm. other psalms we can't like what's the rule then for the psalms <laughs> is there one well i think the, the the short short answer to that is that any psalm that praises god is speaking of immovable, unchanging things that are always true for all people. When you speak of things like psalms of lament, what changes is the situation of the psalmist mm-hmm. or the singer. So this is, is speaking of God regardless of me. This mm-hmm. doesn't in any way depend, This the truth of this psalm doesn't in any way depend on my situation, who the princes are. Uh, whereas something like Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a very specific situation. Mm-hmm. And so there might, you know, there may well be situations where it's okay. So this doesn't actually directly correspond to my situation right now. Which is why, you know, you have, 
you have psalms of lament and complaint, but you also have psalms of thanksgiving at the end of a complaint. Um, and some, and that's why that's one reason why reading more than one psalm at a time is sometimes um, uh, sometimes very helpful uh, because you can you get the if you like the changing light or changing mood. So like Psalm forty four, um, which speaks of um, you know for Psalm forty two very famously after deer pants for the water uh, and and it goes into Psalm forty three which continues the same. Why are you cast out in my soul? I'm not cast out in my, you know, uh, and why in turmoil within me? The next psalm speaks of what everything that God has done and says, why have you re- rejected us, even though we have not been faithful? Awake, why are you sleeping, Lord? We're sending the church. Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Verse 40, uh, chapter, psalm 45, my heart overflows with a pleasing thing. So you get the, in a sense, you can, you see sometimes you kind of enter into the, into a much longer, or into like a sequence um, of um, sequence of psalms, but that that would be direct answer to your question is that all psalms that speak of declare things about God are always relevant to all. Good enough answer for now. For now, psalms are written. All of them are written by different people. Uh, there are, yeah, you know, not, not 150 different people, but yes, there is a variety of variety of authors. Yes, and there's no idea who they are. Some, some we do, some we oh. don't. So many of them are written by David. All right. There are various things. So some Psalms have a heading. So Psalm 144 says, of David. Psalm 145, a song of praise of David. Oh, right. yeah. Um, but then this one doesn't. The last five do not. Can I just, uh, there's something been nagging on after listening to it, but, um, there's it's all been on the news this where these these, these little girls um, were born, one of them almost still born, and things like that. So how does that move on? Is that their parents then who is if they know Jesus or Oh um, you know, if if a baby is still born, what happens to them? In terms of God's salvation, you mean? Go straight to heaven. Uh, where does it say that in the Bible? It doesn't. What does it say in the Bible? It goes down to us. Doesn't say that either. Doesn't say anything. We don't know. We don't know. Uh, we are not told. We are only told of the living, not of the dead. You know, the, um, the, the old, there's an old saying, kind of like an old principle that is used to comfort. Uh, comfort parents' situation is that you know, because you cannot, you know, you can't baptize an unborn child. No. And you know, nor, nor are you supposed to. And I can't remember which church father said something along the lines of, um, so long as you live from the one heart, you also live from the one baptism. Mm. I, you know, you get your, as an unborn child gets ultimately all his life from their mother, including spiritual, but the ones they're born, they need to be baptized. But we don't, we don't have the answers to those questions. Um, what we can, what we do know is who, you know, we are told who is saved and how. So we act in such a way that we don't, uh, we don't put our situation, put ourselves unnecessarily into a situation where we say, I'm not sure what's going to happen to this child. In other words, not delay about this. Uh, these two, um, I forgot, what's the name? weeks ago, this is on the news, um, and one of them 
they think they are safe with these two. Um, because they found something, you know. But I kind of just wondered, you know, well, if that's, you know, how come this child, you know, has, was alive when she came forward, as it were, but now has gone. Now, I don't know her, her parents weren't Christians, because if they were, they would get them baptised immediately, mm. wouldn't they? Yes. Um, I'm afraid I don't know the case. So no. as, as the police would say, I can't comment on individual cases. No, it just was coming back to me because I was listening. Yeah. To it. All we know is yeah. we are, we've been told how to be saved. We're not given no. smaller these footnotes of, of yeah. exceptional situations over which we have no control. Yeah. So in a sense, it's not, it's not for us to worry about. We do know that God is faithful and just and he's good and, and, and righteous. So we just have to leave it at that. Okay. Just, yes. It just all came back. Just now. Yeah. I was like, oh, what was happening here? You know? One final thing I want to say about this put, your, put not your trust in princes. Mm-hmm. I think it's an important thing for us to remember mm-hmm. in our particular point in history where we are very much on the downward slope of a Christian society. Mm-hmm. And I think for very many centuries in Western Europe, there's been a sort of this assumption uh, that ultimately, in the kind of at least in, in the bigger picture, church, church and state are are in the same kind of boat, and, and they're pulling they're pulling in the same direction. And therefore, there's been and this this goes right back to the Reformation, for example, um, is what I remember. Somebody who um, who I know, um, a theologian who has who did his doctorate on Martin Luther, and is a is a, is a uh, uh, he loves his theology and his writing to bits and I remember sitting and saying this is Luther's great mistake um, and he talked about some length about how the terrible blunder that Martin Luther made and it was that um, when the uh, bishops of the church at the, in the 1520s and 30s refused to ordain priests for the Refor- churches of the Reformation and refused to uh, inspect and, and support the parishes uh, Luther said to the uh, ruler of Saxony, you do it then. See, if the prince, if the British don't do it, then the state has to do it, and then they, they basically got the state money, and the, the uh, elector of Saxony then paid for uh, and oversaw the inspection of the parishes. And now, 500 years later, that doesn't seem like that being such a great idea, mm-hmm. when the state still has an influence on how church does things, but has absolutely no interest in the gospel. And it's this, and and I think what it's becoming increasingly the case again, and it's a helpful thing in many ways, is the church must remember that we are actually in the business of being church, and we're not the religious arm of society. Mm. The church is the church, and it operates independently. In a sense, is a is a higher calling than, than than being a member of the state. And it's not the future of Christianity in this country is not going to be the result of legislation in Parliament. By preaching of the gospel. Put not your trust in princes. You know, it's great if we get Christian politicians. I'm all in favour of it. Apparently one of the people who's, who's, who's thought to be in line, possibly for in line for the job of first minister in Scotland, he's a Christian. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Nice change. Mm-hmm. But all you need is, is a bit of political turmoil and somebody else will take their place and that's it. Mm-hmm. The kingdom of God grows by the gospel and not by political alliances. Let's move on.
So that was the don't. So the instruction by the negative, now comes the instruction by the positive. By declaring these beatitudes, list of beatitudes of the sort of person who is blessed. Or rather, it, it, not a list of things, but the list, list all the blessings, uh, of, of being blessed by God. So blessed is he whose help, different, slightly different word, is the God of Jacob. Jacob, of course, being another name for Israel. So Jacob means Israel, not just Jacob, the, the one man, whose hope is in the Lord, Yahweh, his God. So that's where the true blessings to be found. Not in prosperity, not in you know, having, having the favor of men uh, or, or anything else. The blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. I look my, lift my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And this expands on that. Here. God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God. And this, again, if you go back to the example of uh, COVID, you know, what, what can we hope for? What's, what's, the, what's our hope for the future in this terrible situation? They find a cure for it. No, wrong answer. Correct answer. The Lord our God is our hope. Well, yes, that goes without saying. But no, that, but my point is that that's the thing that we need to say. Yeah. And the other thing goes without saying. Of course, we want we want things to get better, <coughs> but the thing that doesn't it doesn't actually go without saying. You know, if you say say, well, actually, what people really want is to live healthy in other days. Say, yes. Because they actually, our hope is in the Lord our God. Really? It's the Lord who will find the person who will eventually... No, find I'm, no, sorry. Let me, I, I think I haven't been clear. Let me explain what I mean. I don't mean, how do we get out of COVID? Whether there's COVID or not, whether we've got cancer or we're under root health, whether we're living or dying, what's our true hope? And the true hope is God. Yeah. Not getting better or staying well or finding a cure or anything else. And this is, again, I will be very brief about this because I could talk for a long time. It would be quite boring. Uh, I find it so very frustrating and, and at least mildly distressing that at the time, you know, we, if we just use COVID as an example, the churches were so busy echoing public health messages rather than offering true hope whether or not this thing gets, gets better. You know, closing churches, wash your hands, stay at home, is not the hope that the gospel gives. For that, we've got the Department of Health. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. God is our hope, then everything that he is and does and has promised is ours ultimately. And hanging on to that, in other words, knowing, and this is where we come to God's word. How do you have hope in the Lord his God? Except by knowing him, and you know him through his word. Who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Who seems to keep faith? Okay. Yeah, remain faithful. To remain faithful forever. Not just for a long time. Who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Who's going to say the but? <laughs> That's not what we see. Right? That's not what we see. But this is what is declared. So God will, first of all, whatever food the hungry do get, thanks be to God, and they're full, and they're not hungry, all good gifts come from God. But what this is also is a promise that this is, God will bring about 
justice and plenteousness for all. A little bit like uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary sang in the Magnificat. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hunger with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So God will bring about justice. Now you can, you know, if there's injustice in the world and it seems like it's not resolved, it will be. No later than at the last judgment. But sooner or later, God will give justice and he will fill the hungry with good things. And in that sense, I mean, look at um, uh, the, the don't store up treasure in barns mm. and parable and things. We think, you know, those who look very well off on a that moment that they do die, all that wealth is nothing. So in that mm. sense, we see that justice coming. Yes. Um, mm. The poor will be rich and the hungry will be fed. Um, it might be at their death, but that's when. Yes. If not in this one. Yes, and then what happens at death, that is actually then determinative of the longer term future, mm. rather than what's happened up to this point. I mean, you've heard of rags to riches stories and riches to rags stories, mm. you know, people who come from nothing and become wealthy, and other people who've blown away great fortunes, sometimes mm. more than one. Mm. And then they say, well, what's, you know, what's the moral of the story? Is it, do we look at the beginning, the middle, or the end of the story to get to the kind of true character of the person? And we have been, in, in, God has promised us all a rags to riches story <laughs> in that, you know, however poor or oppressed we are now, he will give us justice. And we will, you know, like it said in, in, in Corinthians 6, it said, you will judge, the saints will judge the world. You know, and all those people whose way, you know, whose wages were stolen, who were trampled down, the slaves who were bought and sold and mistreated, who died in faith, they will stand in judgment over the world. So which would you rather be now? And the correct, sensible answer is, I want to be the one now who is that there, whatever it takes. You know, if you have to wait six hours for a sumptuous dinner, or you can have a tin of baked beans in half an hour, but you have to, you can only have one. Which would you rather have? And, uh, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not actually a difficult choice if you sit down and think about it, but we are very much driven by our appetites, by our passions, by our present experiences. And it's sometimes very difficult to see beyond the present because we are so earthbound. God keeps faith forever. He executes justice for the present. It's the thing that we say to little children of the church. God keeps his promises. He really does. And he then, and then this, you know, we go to the next round of what, what sort of things does God do? And notice who are the objects of God's work. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. What do those people have in common? They're in need. They're in need. Society's undesirables. They're the undesirables, the, the, the outcasts. They're low status. People who can't look after themselves. They're helpless and needy. Yes. They are dependent. They are uh, easily oppressed or are oppressed. So 
prisoners, obviously, are prisoners. They are, they are bound. And again, the implications of these are the people who got caught shoplifting. These are people who've been, you know, um, uh, have been unjustly imprisoned. There's this, this links very closely to, um, prophecy of Isaiah, which Jesus reads, uh, in, in, in the uh, synagogue in Nazareth. Um, where he says, the spirit of the Lord is, uh, Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So the, the, the very likely, you know, what sort of a person would be, because they didn't have a, a prison system like we have. So what sort of a person would be imprisoned in the ancient world? Believers were in prison. No. People that owed money. Debtors. That was the number one cause of imprisonment. The other one was prisoners of war. Mm-hmm. So prisoners of war debts. So if somebody's in prison is almost certainly a reference. I mean, there, yes, there were sometimes people incarcerated, like Joseph who was incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but prisoners in Omath would very often, they'd be there because they were in debt. So if God says the prison is free, he pays off their debts. The Lord opens up the bicep by the blind. Those who are bowed down by what? Debts, again, I suppose. Bowed down by any kind of oppression. Yeah, oppression or burden. Yeah, oppression, burden, hard labour, any of those things. The Lord loves the righteous. Well, that's something. Changing, change of subject. Lord loves the righteous. What's right? What does righteous here mean? Please don't go straight to the ultimate theological answer that you've learned from the catechism or from reading Romans. If a person is righteous, what does that mean? It's by God's direction. This, this is uh, not, a, not an incorrect answer at all. But let's answer that question without mentioning God. I know it's a shocking and scandalous thing to do in the Bible study, but let's try. If a person is righteous... Talk about that person alone. The English word kind of has it in it. Well, they're doing the right thing. Morally right, morally correct. But it's not, it's not to do that. It's to do with God believing and faith in God, isn't it? Like when he describes Abraham as righteous. It was counted to him as righteousness. Mm-hmm. That's what made him righteous, yes. Right. But the righteous, I mean, actually the... um. I was always taught by uh, my my uh, uh, university teacher of Hebrew was um, he was a church of England clergyman but he was he he always liked to stir and stir the pot a little bit and and, and sort of draw it draw our minds away from easily learned and memorized things to seeing the text more freshly and point out that the earliest mention outside the Bible to the word righteous comes from um, from a set of um, measure weights and measures that were found some archaeological dig. And the, these weights were considered were labelled as righteous. So correct. So if it says five Standard. pounds, it actually is five pounds. Following the rules and so the idea is right, and the English word righteous actually comes from straightness, oh. not crooked. So you know, if you say that way to London, if you keep going that way, you will end up in London and not in Brighton. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if it says five pounds, you know that you're really going to get five pounds of fish and not four, mm-hmm. just because there's a number five. 
the right the eyes. It is true to uh, it is true and straight, and it is, it is what it claims to be. So a person is righteous as a person who is you know, walks the straight line, straight and narrow, like <laughs> or you think you know that they are what they are to be. You know, what are we to be? We're creating the image of God. So a righteous person actually acts like that and not according to some other thing. And of course, we can say, well, we don't do that. This is the corruption of sin, that we are crooked and, and, and bent and, and corrupt and, 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 you know, are, we see funny. You know, we are so colorblind. We are, we are truth blind. And therefore, we are not righteous in ourselves, but God makes, can make us righteous and he instructs us in righteousness. And Joseph, for example, is, is, is labeled a righteous man, not because he has such faith in God, but because he was righteous man because of what, how he acted towards Mary. Now that came from faith. So you cannot be righteous ultimately without faith. People act in righteousness because they know the truth. So God's righteousness and his word comes first, but then that also the real life impact on us. So God love, loves, doesn't just, he says God loves the righteous doesn't mean it doesn't really matter how you behave as long as you believe in God. No, believing God, believing in God leads people to be righteous also then in their conduct. In all sorts of imperfect but nevertheless measurable ways. So the Lord loves the righteous. Lord watches over the sojourners. What's a sojourner? Traveler. Yeah, it's, it's what we might call, in America it's called a resident alien. Lesser. Resident alien, not from Mars, but means, i.e., you know, from another area, live somewhere else. So you, you, yeah, so you, you, you live away from, you are, you are there as a, as a, as a, as a foreigner. Not accepted. In some you do, well, may or may not be accepted. That's not what it makes. It's a sojourner just simply means somebody who's dwelling, not in their homeland, but they, and they're either temporarily. And of course, in Israel, which is a land that's based on promise and inheritance, uh, it means that those people who are sojourners, they have no inheritance in the land. They are there as tenants at best. And therefore they don't have a permanent dwelling and they don't have permanent rights. And that's why the law of Moses is full of things about how to treat sojourners. There are expectations on them that they must live by the law of the land, but they have to be looked after particularly because they're vulnerable because they have no possessions of their own. The Lord watches over the sojourners, which is to say that if you mistreat them, God's watching them. He can mm. see. Mm. He cares about them. He upholds the widow and the fathers. What do those have? They're on their own. They're on their own. Lacking support. And they're, and l- lacking someone to provide and protect. Mm-hmm. So widows and fathers were people because, again, you needed, you needed a father and a husband. Um, not just because, not, not primarily because people were sexists, but actually, the, you know, if you live in a subsistence agrarian economy, not having somebody with the strength of the male body is going to have, be a serious handicap to you. However hard you work as a woman, the physical limitations of, of the strength being such, you are far more vulnerable and of course you need protection. But the way of the wicked he brings through. So you see there's this list of what God does. He loves the righteous and there's, uh, and God's care for the vulnerable and and protect those who have no protection, and then what he does with wicked, wicked people brings ruin. This poetic range loves the righteous, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. He looks after the needy. He watches over those who have no other protection. He is their protector. I.e., it is to him you have to give an account if you mistreat. 
take advantage of people who have no one to protect. They sent them off to Australia. Uh, they hadn't found Australia yet for legislation, so it's okay. <laughs> there are worse things, yeah. Many worse things than being sent to Australia, I'm afraid, oh, have no, been done. But it wasn't when they paid the that. No, what I'm saying, even <laughs> then, in the history of mankind, many worse things have been done to the widows and the fatherless than just being sent to Australia, even though that was terrible. Mm. Slavery, prosti- uh, prostitution, all those things were very, very common fates of. And, and in some societies, until very recently, even, even now, there is if you pardon the very inappropriate expression, healthy trade in surplus children in some parts of the world. Mm. And everybody knows what happens to them. Mm. Especially in Africa, isn't it? No, not, not, I mean, Africa is a very big place, a very, very, very great. I would say that there's a certain parts of Southeast Asia, for example, where it's common. And we know where girls end up and boys end up in different places. Mm. Well, not necessarily even that. So it's, it's a terrible thing. And so God watches it. He has a particular concern for those who have no one else to care. How, how do um, how do you get to the people that are needy if they're not coming to church? Well, the, this is talking about particularly about physical need. Mm. Oh, I see. So yeah. kind of just to make sure that yeah, they're so not hungry and oppression. Yeah. yeah. So you yeah. care, right? You care for care mm. for those. And now, what? Why is this? You know, this is a psalm of praise to God. Or about God. Um, this tells us something about the essential nature of the work of God. There are other Psalms that talk about his great and mighty power and the works of wonder that he has done. But here's the other one. Here's the other end of that. How does God use his power? How does he use his wisdom, his judgment, his strength? He does it in this, in service, in the service of those who need him because no one else will. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. You could say, well, that's nice. But of course, you might say that because nobody else will help us. Now, it is nice. It is a good thing because if God is on your side, God is for us. Who can be against us? But nevertheless, this draws our attention to the fact that the world is a very unequal and very unfair place. And left to its own devices, it will remain forever so. And however much legislation you pass, it will be so. Our expectations of these days are very high. And we need to learn to be more, dis- you know, more, more, uh, more prepared to be disappointed when the world turns out to be just the same as it was ever. But all along, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord of God, because he cares for them. He cares about justice and righteousness. He hates and will punish wickedness sooner or later. It's one of my kind of, for me personally, when people say, you know, surely if God loves every, you know, if God is loving God, they can't be hell. And then you think of some of the really, really, really wicked things that people have done and got away with in the history of the world. What would you say to their victims? When it's actually, you know, too bad, nothing's going to be done about it. God loves, you know, God, God, God loves, God, God loves everybody so much that he's just going to ignore what was done to you. He's going to ignore the injustice that's going to happen because he's, he's too nice for that. God isn't nice. He's much better than nice. God is true and he's just and he's righteous. 
And that mm-hmm. does mean that wickedness will be punished. And our hope is therefore only in that the wickedness, our wickedness has already been punished. And there, there would have been salvation for Hitler and Stalin too. Because his, their wickedness was also punished, if only he was in. Yeah. And the Lord will reign forever. That word reign is, is, is in, in Hebrew means to be, to act, to be king. So God is the eternal king. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. What's Zion? Israel again. No specific. It's a bit. That's where God is. No. What is Zion? Yes, Holy Hill in Jerusalem. Zion is Jerusalem. Oh. Yes, and particularly the temple, where the temple is. Isn't that the heart of Israel, the people of God? Or people it of is, God. but it's not the same thing. It's like saying you know, London is in, in Britain, but it's not Britain. Okay. So whenever you see Zion, you think of Jerusalem, you think particularly it's with reference to the temple, Mount Zion, which is the Mount Moriah on the same mountain in which Abraham mm-hmm. um, very nearly sacrificed Isaac. Praise the Lord when we come to the end. So this psalm, and there's a beautiful so we won't sing it now because we ran out of time, uh, but we sometimes sing it. There's a beautiful uh, paraphrase of that psalm uh, in our hymn book. Praise the Almighty, my soul adorns. I'm just going to read the words if you have anything to follow the words. Uh, along roughly in the Psalms. This, our version has a few verses missing. It's an eight verse psalm, uh, hymn originally and it's been condensed into five. Praise the Almighty, my soul, adore him. Yes, I will lord him until death. With songs and anthems I come before him as long as he allows me breath. From him my life and all things came. Bless, O my soul, his holy name. Alleluia. Trust not in rulers, they are but mortal. Earth when they are soon decay. Vain are their counsels at life's last portal, when the dark grave engulfs his prey. Since mortals can no help afford, place all your trust in Christ, our Lord. Hallelujah. Blessed, O oh blessed are they forever, whose help is in the Lord Most High, whom from salvation can nothing sever, and who in hope to Christ draw nigh. To all who trust in him, our Lord, with aid and counsel now afford. Hallelujah. Penitent sinners for mercy crying, pardon and peace from him obtain. Ever the wants of the poor supplying, their faithful God he will remain. He helped his children in distress, the widows and the fatherless. Alleluia. Praise all ye people, the name so holy, of him who does such wondrous things. All that has been to praise him solely with happy heart its amen sings. Children of God with angel host, praise Father, Son and Holy Ghost. Alleluia. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, thank you and we praise you for your wonderful goodness and kindness to us mortal men and women. We thank you that you did not leave us to our wickedness, but rather you sent your son to bear our sins on the cross, so that in him we might have righteousness and life. We thank you for your concern and care for the poor and the weak and the needy. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would work in us that we too would be poor in spirit before you in order to receive your blessing. And that having received your blessing, we would also be a blessing to those 
who you place into our lives so that we might become the hands and eyes and ears and feet of your work of salvation to those who are bowed down and oppressed. Teach us always to know your goodness so that we might praise you through all our days. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen. Thank you.